help you discover your many layers. You peel your car, you wake up, with fresh eyes. Question life, question humanity, question society, but most of all, question yourself. I'm Andrew Simonette. I'm a choreographer and writer in Philadelphia in the United States. I ran an experimental dance company for 20 years called Headlong Dance Theater. We did a lot of projects in the community, in public spaces, using the bodies, not just of professional dancers, but of everyone. And that work gradually became more of what um, you refer to as socially engaged practice uh, that and led to me actually leaving my dance company because it didn't feel like the right space to continue that work. I also write fiction. Um, my first novel came out a couple years ago and my second one's coming out in a few months. And that sounds unrelated to making dance, but to me, they're actually very closely related. <laughs> and then I, I organize with artists in this platform called Artists U, which is how do we as artists trying to build conversations around how we make our work, what matters most, sort of our mission and impact that we want, how we sustain ourselves and how we build um, a community of support that can that can hold that in a culture, particularly in the US where the, the support is very limited and difficult to get and inequitably distributed. So trying to sort of organize, not, not necessarily to change those structures, but actually just to build our own base of support um, and, and activism. So yeah, that's me. I also have um, two kids and we've been together every day in lockdown <laughs> since last March. <laughs> So me, my wife, my two kids are together all the time. Um, yeah, and that's, uh, yeah, that's also a part of my practice, thinking about how parent artists kind of can stay engaged. And, you know, part of the trick with sustaining yourself as any kind of artist, it all becomes harder when you have kids. So I'm thinking about how we support the artists in the most challenging circumstances, which will help everyone, <laughs> um, yeah, sustain and make work. Well, there are so many things that I want to talk about. Um, maybe a little bit of like introduction and context would be that I read your book, Making Your Life as an Artist, because my friend Josiane, who is a poet, uh, recommended that. And it just resonated on so many levels. Also because, well, you know, the report about um, how artists are non-essential workers, that report came from Singapore, <laughs> which is where I'm at. So, you know, just imagine the art scene here. Um, and I just felt like, you know, in a time like now with the pandemic and also, you know, I, I come from the performance sector as well. And it's just been severely impacted. Her performances can't go on as, as per normal. And, you know, if, if COVID had been something that just cleared in six months, that would have been a different situation. But we don't know how long this is going to go on for. What does this mean for artists? Does this mean that people have to, you know, quit their practice or and try and make a living from something else and you know completely different or what are the ways that we can deal with this and when I read your book it was so encouraging because you know it it, it highlighted so many different aspects that we don't think about or that we don't draw the links you know like how um, as artists you've got all the soft skills that you need to create things and and to create things that haven't yet existed but I think the problem with that is also that if it hasn't yet existed people don't know what you're talking about and you, it's very difficult to sell the value of it so I was just thinking like, it'd be really nice to have a, a little bit of conversation on that yeah I mean in sort of in response to your first question about or thought about the pandemic I, I think more about 
the skills that we have than I think about the outputs or the disciplines. I think that's always more interesting to me. I think artist skills are not, uh, they're much vaster than, than you would hear if you said, well, I'm a choreographer, I'm a sculptor, right? There's all of these soft skills and planning skills and people skills and visioning skills um, that we can start from nothing, imagine something and manifest it. That's a really complex set of skills. So I think especially in the pandemic, you know, when am I going to get to do my plays in a theater again, I think is not an artist question. That's an institution question. I think the artist question is um, how are my skills relevant right now? What can I make build and create that's useful and urgent? And I think that's, to be honest, the pandemic emphasizes that, but I think that's always the way, uh, uh, I shouldn't say that's always the way. I think, I think artists always benefit from thinking in that way. I think the, the limitations we put on ourselves in terms of discipline and in terms of outputs, we're not our outputs. Our outputs are great. You know, dances are great. Books are great. Exhibitions are great. But they're, they're just the surface manifestations of a deep oceanic set of practices that we do. And we focus on the outputs, which is what the world wants to do and the funders want to do and the critics want to do. Um, we can end up sort of depleting that ocean and that ecosystem, which gives rise to these beautiful things. It's, it's become starved and stops actually um, producing. So I think the pandemic really challenges us to, to not define ourselves by our outputs, but to define ourselves by our skills and our communities and networks. And I think it's, that's a hard step for a lot of artists you know if you're like I'm used to going to rehearsal and I rehearse and I study the script and then we have a show and then people clap and then we go home and then we do another show like that's a um that's a rhythm that's a flow that's a thing that we're our bodies are used to but it isn't your work your work like capital W work is much vaster than that that's just like one that's your employment and the great thing about artists is our employment and our work are we rarely confuse them because the employment is sparse compared to how big the work is. Whereas I think for a lot of people in under capitalism, their employment and their work are synonymous. They can't imagine working outside of employment. And for us, it's more, uh, we're like, I, what, what if I could get employed <laughs> to do what my work is? That would be amazing even once. So yeah, what is our work and what, how are, how do our communities and, and beloveds and networks need us? I think that's a, those are much more interesting questions to me than, um, when is live theater coming back? Which I just think is like an institutional, there's this crazy thing in the arts where the, the, the basis is the work of artists and the incredible visionary manifesting that artists do. But the institutions are so conservative because of resource scarcity. So you have these institutions kind of gatekeeping that are, that are really based in fear. <laughs> Whereas the, the fundamental um, practice of the work is based in, insane courage and vision. So yeah, I, I, let's not confuse the institution's worries with ours. All the theaters might go away. I hope they don't, and I don't think they will. But even if they did, theater performance would be fine. Like we're not, I'm not worried about us as artists. And I think to confuse the institutional worries with our futures is, um, yeah, is giving the institution, institutions too much weight. They barely support us anyway. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, so that that's sort of my, my yeah, I just feel like that first thing you brought up about yeah. the pandemic is so important. And the way I look at artists is skills-based and not needs-based. And yeah. so many people, when they come to artists, are like, what do they need? What's their problem? As, as this kind of charity model, yeah. there's a 
really influential thinker named Mauricio Miller that you should read, <laughs> who does anti-poverty work in the U.S. And um, millions of people over many, many decades have tried to figure out American poverty and with very, very limited success, including him. He spent three decades in a nonprofit, like, you know, helping, quote unquote. And then he had a real crisis of conscience and he left. Um, and he because he was like, I'm not, I'm just making poverty a little more comfortable and I'm serving the kids and grandkids of people that I served 30 years ago. And his family, he was raised by a single mom, um, Mexican American single mom. He's like, we came out of poverty and it had nothing to, we didn't use any social service programs. <laughs> so he started looking at how people in America communities actually come out of poverty. And he's like, they talk to each other, they form networks and they, they harness their own intelligence. And when the social service sector comes in and is like, we're gonna help you, they, they um, neutralize all of that inherent intelligence in the community and in each individual. So he has this anti-poverty program in which he does nothing for people. He doesn't help them at all. <laughs> he just gets them together and he's like, you all figure out what you need and manifest it. And it, literally his employees, if they try to help, if they try to like give advice and help, he fires them because he's like, that act of giving advice and helping has so much power behind it. And it, mm. it robs people of their efficacy. I think that's so true in the arts. I think everyone's trying to help artists in a way that that infantilizes us and treats us like we are um, yeah, needy little <laughs> sort of beggars. And I, I just think we have to invert that and be like, we should be leading the sector. Like we're not, we, we shouldn't be like helped into a sort of like, you know, lower middle-class lifestyle. We should be the ones visioning and leading what the sector is. And when we lead with our skills and not like, oh, I wish I had this, I wish I had that. I also think there's a lot of, there's a lot more sectors that respond to us. So, you know, sort of in response to your, your opening um, sort of thought, I, I think our, the, the way that one of the ways we get outside of just working in the arts is by really seeing our skills and not our outputs, either like I make plays, I make novels, but also not seeing our sort of needs and our deficits. Like, oh, I wish I had more money. Maybe if I go to the business world, I'll get a big chunk of money and then I'll finally be okay. I think that too, and I know people who have done that. I know a lot of people who are like, I'm just gonna do artsy stuff in the business world and make a bunch of money and that'll that'll help take care of me. And I think that too ends up kind of as a dead end because you, you're, um, you're not actually leading with your most powerful visionary skills. And I think that's where we are. That's where we thrive, to be honest. And I really wanna talk about bravery courage because I feel like you know being being in art school graduating from art school or seeing the way that the art world works and then immediately you know you get thrust into this world of funding <laughs> where you know these are funding application guidelines these are the kind of grants that's available and then often that that almost like you realize quickly that that would dictate your work if you want to make your works based on the funds that's available and what about what about we don't subscribe to these sort of traditional financial ways of doing things? You know, what if we don't subscribe to this system? What if we create our own space in different sectors? And what if what happens if we are not just connecting within the artist space, but also within other sectors such that that, can, that will create more opportunities for us, work opportunities where the work that we're talking about, the, the, the questions behind it, the philosophy behind it, the things that we're questioning in culture and society can also have a place in all of these different sectors that are perhaps also investigating these same questions. And that's a big ask probably because, you know, finding the right people who are driven by the same purpose that's a difficult work on its own. But what if we actually came together and manifested something, you know, that really presents a possibility and a real potential. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there are many artists already doing that and living that way. And I think, um, well, I don't know that, you know, anyone can sort of imitate someone else. You can learn from, you can draw lessons from, you can steal little tactics from. I think there are, there are incredible examples of communities in the U.S., artistic communities that are not grant dependent and are, have different relationships to finances. And there are individual artists who have figured out their um, financial life such that their practice is sustained in all different complicated ways. There's so many different ways that people solve that puzzle. I, I, the courage piece, I think, is um, is another one of our superpowers, <laughs> which is, you know, I, I I was talking to someone the other day about they, they were I was they were trying to get me to explain what artists do to them. To they're not artists, and so one of the things I talk about is. Your, your practice, your mission, and courage. Practice, meaning, the like we said, the wide range of skills, not just the making you do in the studio, though absolutely that. It's also um, how you connect to community. Maybe you teach, maybe you, uh, you know, work in local neighborhoods. And it's how you fundraise, and it's how you hire people and run the team, and it's how you plan the projects. So all of that practice, and I think the great thing we have as artists is we see it as a practice. You know, most professions, people don't think of themselves as having a practice. They think of themselves as having a job and they get hired to do the job. But we really have this broad, full spectrum practice that grows over your lifetime. You know, and you're like, we have that great thing of being like, wow, for this project, I have to learn how to weld. And then we learn how to weld, you know, or, you know, even on a deeper level, wow, for this project, like I have to spend six months in a community that's very different from me. And I need to figure out how to enter and exit that community. And that's an incredible, incredibly powerful skill to add to your practice. So we grow our practice over decades and it thickens and it deepens and it becomes richer. And I think knowing that, like knowing that your practice needs to be fed is so important. And it's fed by time in the studio. It's fed by projects. It's fed by reading. It's fed by travel. But what do you do to feed your practice? Because nobody like none of these projects or funders are going to make sure I feed my practice. <laughs> you know, they want certain outputs. They're going to be like, come do this. And they need me to feed my practice because that's why I can do the cool thing, but they're not going to actually support it. So one, one thing I think we have to ask when we think about economic models is we have to include that time and space and resource to really nourish your practice. And it's different for every artist and it changes over time and it has a wonderful you know, you can follow your little obsessions, you know, right now I'm really obsessed with uh, gardens and growing things. And that's not like ostensibly related to choreography <laughs> or <laughs> writing novels, but it's deeply informing them. And it's going to help me, you know, it's going to help me along the way. Um, and then, you know, your mission, which I feel like you've already talked about, which is I think artists have, we have things we want to give to the world. We have, we have questions we want to ask and there's this fundamental generosity. And I think when we, when we know that and lead with that, you're right, that there's partners far beyond the arts who care about it. There's, there's people who care about your mission. There's people who care about what your work is on about. And they don't care about your career. They really don't care like what happens to your career or if you do well, or if you got this famous thing. The place where you align is that you both care about this third thing, these, this third set of questions, this third push in the world. And, and knowing what having some language around what your mission is that you can tell people and find those partners, I think makes you much more powerful as an artist and increases the impact of the work. And then the third thing, so it's like practice mission. And then there's courage, which is this crazy, the, the, 
the way I've manifested something that was meaningful in the world was by pushing away from shore and pushing away from what I knew and doing something really um, new, scary, <laughs> you know, dangerous and fraught. And then I did that. And then, you know, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes the world was like, great, that was very interesting. Wow, I'm so fascinated. And the tendency then is to be like, great, now just lock it down and keep making that piece over and over. <laughs> like, don't change a thing. That succeeded. Whereas the real answer, of course, is to, to, to look and say, the way I got there is by pushing away from shore, by having great courage. And the way I'm going to get to the next thing is not by, you know, bunkering down and just cranking out another one of those. And that piece is one of the harder things because while you're, you know, I feel like your practice kind of deepens over, over decades, like an ecosystem, the courage, you have to refill that every single time. Every single time you start a project, you have to be like, okay. And even now, even now I have to push away from shore and do something scary. But I think that's what makes us uh, flexing that muscle over and over and including flexing it when you're 50 and 70, you know, I'm 51 years old. And to keep flexing that muscle of doing something that scares the crap out of me is that's so important for us and so important for our communities that, that people keep doing that. So that piece I think is like, that's one reason for me for like these group conversations and community conversations and how we organize, because it's so much easier for me to think about that courage when I realize all kinds of artists are trying are manifesting it and trying to be brave. <laughs> and it's easy for me when I hear another artist be like, Oh, I don't know. You know, this really new project really excites me, but it's totally new. I've never done it. Maybe I should just stay in my lane. You know what I'm like? No, of course go for it. Like that's, that's what makes you powerful. It's so easier to see, to see that um, in someone else. And I think that's the, that's the thing we can really support and nourish in each other because courage is, it just depletes. Like you use it up, you know, you got to refill it every time. <laughs> And there's this point that actually I talk about quite a lot, which is being comfortable with discomfort. And I feel like this is such an important soft skill to have in a time like now. I mean, I'm I'm back in Singapore and really, you know, re relearning <laughs> the culture and context. And it feels like the government's trying to create this safety net where, you know, we try not to fail as much as possible. It's almost like there is no space to fail. But if you don't mm -hmm. fail, you don't have space to fail. You don't have space to experiment. You don't have space to innovate. And if we are trying to safeguard every part of society such that there can't be, you know, anything that is done differently and that we never get to a point where we are uncomfortable, then we're never going to change because change comes from discomfort. And if we have built up a population that is so comfortable that they don't know what to do when it's uncomfortable, they are not going to be resilient. They're not going to be prepared for whatever that is to come. And we are facing a climate crisis. <laughs> it's the best skill to equip our young, younger generations with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's this role we play kind of in the cultural immune system as artists, which is that we, um, we take in things that could be seen as dangerous or <laughs> threats. And we, we sort of help understand and digest them and we help the, the cultural body shift. But absolutely, that takes a ton of failure. And the it's failure is one of those things I just think we, we just know as artists. Like we go in the studio and we try things and it's like, nope, nope, still nope, still nope. Two weeks later, still nope. Month later, still nope. All right, throw all of that out now. Look, we found something. <laughs> but, you know, all those two months of work you just did, that was just to get to this one discovery that now we can move on. People pay like 
so much money to take workshops in the for-profit sector on learning how to fail. Like that's a huge thing. You can go to all these conferences to be like comfort with failure and fail faster and fail better, you know, all that stuff. And I'm like, that is such a given for artists. Like that is, that is, um, that is just deep in our blood about how we move in the world. And I think we, I don't think we need help with that, but I think you're right. I think we can demonstrate to, to others, um, whatever that is, if what you do is social activism or what you do is build community or what you do is provide food, like that, um, that having that um, space and resource to try and quote unquote fail um, or generate negative results. That's what they call it in science. They call it negative results, right? Like this, this drug does not cure this disease. That's really important information that negative results are, are, um, you should be cultivating them. You should be like, I need to get a thousand negative results this year, right? Because that means I'm going to get five really positive ones instead of being afraid of them and ashamed of them and hiding them. Um, and I think we do that as artists though, too. I think sometimes we we push forward like the sort of big, shiny success things. And we don't actually talk about the projects that went nowhere. We don't talk about the six months of experimentation and failure until we got to the idea. We don't, we don't always share those uh we don't always share those those cycles of failure and discovery. And so sometimes you can start thinking that other artists just have it all figured out and they go in the studio and they make something and it's amazing every time. So that's another to me way to organize is to talk very clearly and not just about the studio, but also in our lives. Like I tried to set this thing up and it didn't work out or I had a vision that I could earn money this way and it didn't pan out. Like those are our failure resumes, I think are so important to hear, to share with each other so that we don't have this illusion that other artists journeys are kind of like simple and straight ahead and always triumphant. Uh, but we're the, in order to do that, we have to get over some, I mean, I'm curious how you, your experience with organizing with the artists, um, with INSEP and others, we have to get over some of those blocks that keep us separate and competitive with each other. Well, no, how, how do you think about that? Um, so INSEP was really, collaborative to begin with it wasn't like based on competition like I it was very much my personal relationships with people and then I was I was meeting a lot of people through projects and then I we just connected because we understood what each other were talking about and I created this platform where it was really just um, sort of a space for discussion. Whether or not people are engaged online, that's another topic altogether because I found that, you know, socially engaged practitioners, there's so much with people physically that they don't really care about like online spaces. And it's like kind of really difficult to get them engaged on online discussions. But then um, what's happening is that because I'm constantly having these conversations and then I start this podcast to sort of really document the work that everyone is doing to share that and that it's, it's really an open offer if anyone wants to connect with anyone in the network um, or you've heard someone on a podcast you really want to get in touch with the person then I would you know connect them if, if they need me to do so and then now what's happening is this year I'm really organizing to find ways in which we can work together because I believe we're so much stronger together than than working individually so I've I was in the UK studying and then I went to France so I've been based in Europe for like five five years plus and because I'm Singaporean and I'm not European, I couldn't set up an entity there. So that makes it really difficult for me to continue the work that I'm doing with INSEP. Um, 
also now structurally with the legal framework and stuff, it, it's almost like in Singapore, you, you're not really recognized unless you have a registered entity. But one thing that I'm working out is that, you know, I've got this network, I've got organizations in this network, and they're not just artists, they're people in other fields as well. So what if I partner with them to apply for funding together? So that's something that we've started to do. And it's really exploring these options of like, you know, if you are applying on your own, you only have your own expertise. But if you are applying with other people, then you are sharing your knowledge, your expertise. And that also also makes you more favorable in terms of certain funding applications as well because I am Singaporean then that you know opens up funding opportunities between like sort of Asian Europe cultural exchange and then you know if people are doing something that's to do with community and gardening then you know if there is any sort of parallel in projects that's something that could be exchanged as well I think the only thing is that people don't really have time and I can't I can't really understand this because so much time goes into socially engaged work you are you are the fundraiser you are the administrator you are you are everything which is like five different full-time jobs in one and then you are doing the execution of the project itself and you know when balancing all that time beca becomes a scarcity and now I'm really figuring out what are the ways in which if I were to set up an entity or if I were to apply for um, grants or funding to do a project, how can I relieve the burden of another organization? What is it that we have in common? What is it that I can do to support that? And then maybe it's a sort of support structure network of collaboration in which uh, maybe I'm borrowing the name to apply for a funding, but actually I'm doing the work and then I'm supporting them and taking their workload off them. And then I'm using my expertise and my resources and network overseas to help to you know, firstly take some of those processes. So I feel like, you know, that's another way to look at it because, you know, we have so many organizations around and working in the NGO, in an NGO in France, it really made me realize that so much time goes into bureaucracy, administration and all these crap that you don't need to service the system. If there are already organizations out there, why create another one and put yourself through that pain? Just, you know, work with people and find ways in which, I don't know, some companies already do it at companies in terms of like, you know, shell company where it's a company that is, there well legally it's all there but then it's really just a space for artists to be able to do stuff through the company so i feel like we need more of such collaborations mm -hmm. yeah there's and in the u.s there's a the term we use is fiscal sponsorship so the u.s equivalent of an ngo would be a, a non-profit organization 501c3 but rather than starting one you can partner with one and they can sort of yeah be your umbrella you come in through them you fundraise through them and, um, but you do the programming or the project. And that's what I do with Artists U. Uh, so I, I ran a nonprofit, a sort of NGO, my dance company for 20 years. And yeah, it's, it's a real, the administrative burden, the fundraising burden is intense. And it's, um, I was really glad to do it. And it allowed me to sort of focus on my work eventually full time. And I learned a lot, <laughs> but I also learned that there was a late, this later phase of my life I didn't want that I think that's also important to say like there are so many models for the ways artists make their work and fund their work and put their work out in the world and those change over time very few artists stick with the same uh sort of financial model you know they're, they're sort of time pie and their money pie like those are always changing and I think to be as creative and resourceful with that as we can like we are in the studio like we're so creative and resourceful but sometimes outside the studio we sort of take the world as it is and just like, well, what can I do? Get this job, do that. But what you're saying, I think, is just modeling a mindset of 
how can we creatively and resourcefully work with these systems to fund the work? And that, you know, and that changes over time. And I, I just, again, I want to say, like, I think there's all these answers are great, but what's most great is the thinking <laughs> that you're bringing to it because there's, there are millions of ways that artists figure this out. And that's another great reason I think to come together with other artists is to hear there's not one way. And even within one artist's journey, there's many, many ways that they've done it. I have this crazy idea, which is that like, you know, all these tech companies that are earning billions of dollars, what if, what if they just hired socially engaged artists and that it's almost like giving artists a UBI and then socially engaged artists can work on their welfare of companies, like their staff, employees, and then half of the time or maybe more would be to um, work with communities in how their practice would have normally been. And then that's the CSR of the company. Why can't we create you know, more stable sort of financial structures for artists to be able to not worry about the financial aspect of things while doing good, while also benefiting these you know, tech companies who might also want to do good as well. Why can't we just bypass all these, you know, getting the tax to go to governments and then maybe if it's not corrupted, it's going to come back to us somehow through grants, like mini, mini grants, and then having to apply for that. And that's, you know, like five times the work than what it should be just to be able to do the work. What if we come up with more innovative ways of doing things? What if we partner with businesses? What if we just you know, fundamentally change the way that the system is such that it makes it easier for people to do social impact work. Yeah, I love that set of questions. I think those are great. Yeah, I think that's a great um, sort of manifesto to, to bring to the world and to bring to artists and to bring to corporations. I'll say, based on some experience with artists who have done similar things, you know, uh, you use the word just like, well, what if we just get tech companies to fund these? Like it's complicated and, and everyone's complicated. Tech companies have complex agendas. They're not unified even within one company. And the, the, uh, the politics of taking resource from an entity whose mission you actually are not aligned with is complicated. And that's true. You know, the U S has very little public funding for arts and there's none for artists now. But a lot of arts organizations feel complicated when they take a grant from the US government because there's a lot of things going on in the US government. They're very, a lot of their work is about fighting what's going on in the US government. So I think that's complicated. I have a friend whose job it is just to provide like cool cultural conversation for this massive internet company that handles, you know, half of the web traffic in the world. One of these like invisible corporations that actually is the backbone of everything. And uh, sounds like a great job, right? Just like do podcasts, do interviews with people. He makes these beautiful handmade woodwork sculptures as like um, logos of companies and sort of gifts to companies that they work with. And everybody loves them. They're like, oh my God, we get these cheesy little plastic plaques usually. And you made this thing by hand. But, you know, I was talking to him recently and he's like, yeah, I, I don't know how much longer I can do this. Like, this is sort of you know, soul, soul crushing. <laughs> so I, I just want to say like, it's complicated to, um, I fully, I so applaud the vision. And then I think how that actually plays out in the world is going to be complex. Like the, I don't think there's a moment when uh, the for-profit sector just breaks off a chunk and lets artists do whatever they want. Like that fantasy that a lot of us have, we're like, this is nothing to Google. I mean, of course it's nothing to Google. It's nothing to even a much smaller organization. But 
that's not how those organizations work. There's there's no amount of money that's nothing to them. And there's people, many people whose job in that company is to squeeze every penny. And they truly are, um, they're marching under a very different banner than we are. And it's exciting to imagine that. So I, please don't hear me as like discouraging it. But I just, I think to be realistic of how different those banners are. And the banner of sort of product manufacturer and the creation of profit through that is a very simple banner scheme of things. And no offense to anyone who runs corporations, it's hard to make products and it's hard to make profit, but it's very clear. You can look at anything and be like, is that moving us closer to our products and our profits or not? Like it's almost always crystal clear. And the work you're talking about them embracing is the opposite of that. It does not, it, it moves towards complexity. It moves towards um, things that are unknowable. And it's um, almost more than the what's on the banner <laughs> that they're marching under. It's the incredible clarity and precision with which they think they can measure that banner that is hard to let go of. And I would love to see that change. And I think we've seen individuals within corporate America try to embrace that. But I, I would not be I would not be naive about how big a project that entails. You know, I. Oh, so many questions in my head because so I'm finding it really difficult. So I, I find it very difficult to work for for-profit companies because most of the time they're selling stuff. Even when it talks about community manager, right? Like I go in with these idealistic fluffy ideas that, oh, I'm going to, you know, genuinely connect people. But no, the, the end goal is just to sell people stuff. And I'm like, you know, stop selling me stuff. Stop giving me advertisements. You know, we don't need more crap that people don't need. We don't need to pollute the environment more. We don't need to exploit more natural resources. But most of the businesses would function this way. And, you know, where where these are, where the jobs are, then what are the options? And I've been thinking about this for a really long time now. Like if we want to create sustainable jobs that are also meaningful for the future of work, then what this means is also that we have to th- change the way that we value things. If we are going to value products or like the Starbucks coffee more than we value personal re- relationships or connection, then we will never put the money into, you know, things like socially engaged projects or practices or, you know, things that brings about community healing. And there has to be that value perception shift. If, if we get to a point where people are People recognize these work as work that, of course, you would be, you would pay for it. You are not paying for the connection. You are paying for the organization, all of the work that goes into making that happen, to make that create that experience, um, and and the event happen. Then, upon recognition of that, and to properly pay it for what it is worth, that would need a sort of like cultural behavioral shift and consumption shift but that consumption shift is going to do us good because then it means that we can provide more services we can create more jobs that isn't based on creating more crap that the world doesn't need yes i mean i'm i'm of course i'm with you i i guess i think that I guess I want to say that I think a lot of communities are already doing that. And I think in a lot of communities, the balance of kind of uh, materialist products and profits and um, community-based interactions and practices, that's always been at the root of their survival. So yes. And I think there's already models to look at, you know, you see it, you know, the, so there's, um, a community in coastal southern United States, South Carolina, Georgia, called Gullah and Geechee. 
people. These are freed slaves or Africans who came over who were never enslaved, who have had a continuous culture for hundreds of years and kind of a hidden culture for a long time, certainly during slavery and even post-slavery with their own language, um, religion, cultural practices, storytelling, visual art. And uh, there are things in that community that challenge American assumptions about profit and ownership profoundly, not on the surface, not like, well, what if we change this little, little piece of it? But they actually profoundly have a different way of moving as individuals and families and communities. And so, yeah, I think about that. I think about maybe this is not a practice of, um, or I guess I would, I would just encourage the thought, maybe walking in through the big corporate door is not the only way to enter this field of inquiry, but maybe actually to go to communities where that's been true for hundreds of years and to think about amplifying and learning from them. You know, in, in America, like black music and dance, which are massive and now are massive globally, uh, have sort of really, yeah, have been like the most meaningful things that have happened in American music and dance, our black music and dance in the last 150 years. But those were not grant funded. Those were not nonprofit funded. Those were not um, institutions getting together and supporting them. Those were those were community-based, street-based art forms that were worked out within social groups. And money was a part of it. And jazz musicians pushed hard to get paid. Um, but money was not the basis. And yeah, there was a, uh, the power of the art form lay in the community. And so institutional relationships were, were, were not necessary and were irrelevant. Like they could just shrug them off. So anyway, I just think there might be models out there to look at that are um, that are different from can we make this corporation be a little more blah, 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 <laughs> mm. which I think you can. But in my experience, it's very limited and, it, and temporary. You know, a new leader comes in, a new board comes in, someone else buys yeah. the company and then that project is uh, almost to the wayside. The more that I research into this space, the more I feel like it's like a ball that's just bouncing in the same net and going in circles. Because the more that I research and, and learn about this, the more I'm feeling like, am I just trying to find solution in a system that isn't working? Because to exist in the system or, or to live in a system, it, it almost feels like you, you have to follow the system, but the system is broken. The system is failing. The system is not working. And, as much as I try to go against it, it feels too massive. It feels too too big to go against. And then I'm reading, you know, books by Charles Eisenstein, um, Sacred Economics. I don't know if you know about it. And it's, you know, really talking about all these, you know, different ways of doing things, gift economy, indigenous cultures, looking at interest rates as, you know, a, a thing that was invented to bind us into a form of modern slavery where, you know, people are paying mortgages and, and all of that. And that's why that what that's what's kept keep keeping people working and how do we go about this you know in the end like when we talk about social impact when we talk about education I've been talking to a lot of people in the business space recently and you know they are like in their 50s or 60s and 70s and they tell me that education is really important if we want to tackle the climate crisis we have to educate the kids starting from like four-year-olds and I'm like Great, but these four-year-old kids, by the time they're old enough to make a difference in the world, it's too late. And it's not that my generation doesn't know about it. We know about it, but I've seen so many of my peers, you know, and 
graduating, entering the workforce, at some point they've got to just succumb to this nine to six life where, you know, that's going to bring them an income, that's going to pay them the rent, that's going to allow them to live. They hate their jobs. They know that it's not meaningful. They know that it's useless, but, you know, they can't do anything about it. And they know that this system is making them live this certain lifestyle. But what can they do to break out of it? What are the options? And in the end, all of these young people who are aware, who are conscious, we are not harnessing that good energy to do something good. You know what I mean? Like the system doesn't support it. And when we talk so much about like, you know, young energy coming into this world to change things, there's a limit to how much things can change. Like Greta Thunberg, I really admire her for her courage to do you know, all the work that she's doing with advocacy. But, you know, older people are saying that this girl doesn't know what she's talking about. What else do you expect girls like her at her age to be doing? What else can they do, you know? And it's just like, we we put too much hope and idealism into young people as though this younger generation is really going to change things. But what are we doing in all the other generations, whatever your age is, to create a better environment such that young change makers can be at their fullest potential to to do the work that they're doing to to create change in this world. Ooh, yeah, you're saying yes. Wow, so much. Yeah, there's so much there, and I think there's. I, I just want to honor for a minute, just also the emotion that's there that that I feel, and I I would, I, you know, I don't think we're we're the same age, but I think if I was your age, the. Um, the intensity of that feeling of almost betrayal that your culture has decided to ruin the planet despite seeing another path and is constantly talking about it and constantly doing nothing. I think there's something very so painful and traumatizing about that. So I just want to honor that and hold that. <laughs> um, Thank you. Thank you also because I feel like I've been voicing it and fight, fighting for it in a, well, in a very pragmatic society with uh, age groups that are, you know, a lot older than me. And a lot of times I feel like I'm shouting into thin air and nobody is really hearing. Like they know that it's happening, but they are, they don't feel anything. And it's just, I, I probably am going to experience a part of whatever this crisis is going to bring about in my lifetime. But I also feel even more sorry towards the younger generation that's going to come. And my responsibility, you know, as much as I want to change the situation environment, what exactly can I do? I feel sometimes helpless as well. Yeah. And I, I think it's worth saying that this is an exquisitely difficult problem for human beings to reckon with because... So do you know this term externality? This is like a market term. So there's the, you know, internal costs. And then there's externalities, which is that if I, you know, open a steel plant right here, that you you as my neighbor are going to have these huge clouds of smoke over you. That doesn't cost me anything, but there's a cost. And free markets are very incredibly good at pricing goods and distributing goods and services. And I just want to say that, like, I have a real, I'm not one-sided about the free market. If you've ever tried to get like a good tire for your car in a non-free market country, you will be like, <laughs> it's so impossible. And you have to know the right people and it takes a week and then you get it and it's, it might be a piece of crap anyway. Like the way that free markets um, create and distribute goods and services to an incredible degree, but because of the, or not because of that, 
systems that tend to distribute and create a lot of goods tend to be very bad at, at distributing them equally. And systems that distribute them equally tend to be very bad at creating a lot of goods and services. So we now have this massive externality, not my company or even my town. The entire globe has an externality, which is that the energy cost of um, so much of our progress in technology is manifesting as a climate crisis. It's so hard for the human mind to understand externalities. And this one in particular, because it's, it's not that I opened a steel plant and your air is poisoned. It's not even that my country opened a thousand steel plants and your country's air is poisoned. It's a thousand little decisions I make every day that have no direct consequence. In fact, almost impossible for me to perceive it. Um, it's almost impossible for a human being to perceive the climate crisis. And even if I lived my entire life uh, making the bad choices, it would be the world would be almost not at all different from if I lived my entire life making the good choices. So it's not just a huge externality that's far removed from my experience. It's one upon which my individual choices um, are indiscernibly relevant to the outcome. So to get people to massively change their behavior based on that is very hard. I just want to say that not as a, an excuse or a defense, but rather as a tr tr try to more precisely state the problem and perhaps to open up a space that artists are useful, which is that the, the problem with climate change is not that we haven't documented it. It's not that we haven't told people. It's not that we haven't come up with policies that could affect it. It's this fundamental gap between my individual choices, my community's choices and my country's choices are so disconnected from this massive catastrophe that it's very difficult for me to counterweigh those choices and to see a different way of choosing. And while I still believe it's entirely inexcusable that our leadership can't do that because that's one of the reasons you vote for or hire leaders. Um, I think the, the, the kind of human spiritual puzzle of it is how do we come together around a thing that none of my choices will ever change for better or worse, but all of our choices will change. That's a very, to me, that's a spiritual, artistic, cultural question rather than, you know, why aren't we just doing a carbon tax and, you know, ramping <laughs> down our production of carbon to output. Um, and I wonder if the, um, I think one of the things we do as artists is we keep asking more interesting questions. And, and how do we ask a better question about this to me is, and I'm not, again, I'm not trying to like placate this. I think the, I think the tragedy of being born into a world that knows it is self-destruction destructing that talks about it constantly and refuses to do anything is um, yeah. It's almost like abuse. It's almost like being born into a family that beats you every day and then pretends like they love you. <laughs> so I don't, I'm not trying to deny that trauma. I think it's real and I think it's profound and I see it in the bodies and minds and souls of the young people I work with. But I wonder if there's if there are more interesting questions and better questions we could ask than, you know, than the one Greta asked asking, which I think is a good one, which is, you know, she's just saying, what the fuck, people? Here's the truth. Why are you doing anything? And that's a good question. It's good to hear that. And it's bracing and it's astringent. And it's like a, um, it's, it, yeah, it gives you a, a chill and a shudder and you sort of see through different eyes. But I wonder if there are other questions we could ask. I wonder what it means to practice mutuality and to practice mutuality with people that you've never met. It's not something that human beings have done really. We haven't really 
strengthened our empathy muscles beyond people we see and know. And in fact, a lot of us don't even have empathy for some of the people we see and know, but it's very hard and very um, conceptual to be like, I'm going to, um, I'm going to choose not to drive my car because of an island in the Pacific, which is about to be underwater. Like that kind of empathy is a very, that's a, that's a strange and interesting question to me. There's also a question to me about, um, about more. I think part of what you were talking about when you're talking about all these products and all the stuff that we don't need is this question of more. And I think there's a, for those of us who have grown up under capitalism, more is such a given that it's hard to imagine what is enough or, or certainly what's less. <laughs> but, the, but enough versus more is to me a really subtle, interesting question. And I wish I had more tools for evaluating enough. And I guess I think of artists as one of the sort of sacred professions that can do that, that can actually come up with like, here's a way to think about enough, or, you know, here's 20 versions of more and 20 versions of enough, or um, here's what happens if you stop thinking about more. What does the world look like? What does a painting look like? What does a performance look like if more is not the goal? And I think that's hard for us as artists sometimes too, because we are, we have, you know, whatever funders and organizations we work with, and they very much have the more, you know, NGOs and nonprofits, they're also like trying to produce results and, you know, hit targets and hit the outcomes and delivers deliverables. Um, but what is, what is, what does enough mean? And in fact, what is the price of more, not just in terms of the economic and environmental impact, but I think more is really toxic to me in my own soul and life and family. And somehow that starts to flip it because if I start to see more as being a prison that I'm living in, then my liberation and the earth's liberation are the same thing. Whereas if more is kind of my quiet goal all along, then cutting back and doing less, my liberation and the earth's liberation are different. It's like, all right, well, I'll give this up in order to help this poor planet for the future. I, my experience with human beings is that's rarely, that rarely happens at scale and for a long time that people put something before their self-interest. They do, a lot of people do, but in a permanent scalable way. All that is to say, I wonder if there are different questions we could help our communities to ask. And building on that, if more means more growth, more exploitation, that the planet, the planet cannot take anymore, does this mean that we shouldn't also be asking for more in terms of our income? Because the more that people have also means that the more you will spend. Yes, I think, uh, I think artists, relatively speaking, are pretty good at being like, here's what I need and here's what will be enough, which I think is great. I think it's a real, especially in America, it's so rare to have people be like, you know what, if I have this, I'm good. I don't need to get more than this. That's just not the model here. The model is always upgrade, in, upgrade, increase, improve, step up the ladder. Um, but I, 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 
yeah, I mean, I, I feel like yeah, there's so many thoughts that come to mind when you say that. One is that um, sometimes the climate crisis, I think, blinds us to the incredible achievements that human beings have brought into our world. And I do think that the number of people who are alive and well and thriving and educated, it's unthinkable. And it was even unthinkable, you know, 60 years ago and certainly unthinkable 300 years ago. The externality is massive, of course, in terms of climate change and the inequities are massive, but those are products of an incredible achievement. And there's something about, um, yeah, there's something about how do we hold space for what human beings have collectively built without just signing off on all of the externalities and exploitation <laughs> that come with it. But the, I, I tend to hear one or the other. I tend to hear people either being like, well, capitalism sucks. And these are people whose entire education's lives and livelihoods have come through capitalism. And I'm like, okay, well, live somewhere, live in a non-capitalist system for a few decades and then let's talk because it's easy to reap the benefits and then sort of, you know, be like a little whiny little rich kid who's like, well, I hate you, mom and dad, you're, you're rich, right? Like, but you've actually grown up with all of that. And so what does it mean to take ownership over what this has brought without necessarily signing off on the externalities, which is basically a way of saying, is there a vision for a sustainable world? And when I say sustainable, I don't just mean in terms of carbon. I mean, like mm -hmm. you're saying, for human beings, for what it means to have a life and a livelihood that's meaningful to them. I think the thinking of your friends who are in like jobs that they hate, you were saying, you know, fellow graduates who end up in jobs they hate, like, why am I doing this? Um, I, I don't want to say that's the norm for human history, but I would say it's more common than not that people are, um, people are in jobs in employment their actual tasks they do that is not deeply soul filling. But very often that was meaningful in the context of the communities that they were a part of. So yes, maybe what I did was pretty backbreaking work uh, most days, but it was to sustain me and my family. And it was part of a community network of people surviving and having lives and cultures together. And I wonder if that piece Oh, I guess I wonder if rebuilding that piece is a more feasible choice than um, suddenly turning everyone's jobs meaningful, which I think is hard. I think it's hard to, um, you know, human beings are complicated and we're mysterious and we can be dissatisfied in all kinds of situations. And what actually fulfills us, I think we know this as artists, like it changes and it morphs over time. You know, if you made me do my artistic life of 20 years ago today, I would be like, oh no, that's a terrible job. Like that would be like, <laughs> that'd be like, that's a soulless job I don't want, right? Even though it was an artist's job. So humans are complicated and and we're not, I guess I wonder if our, our if a feeling of daily happiness is the best measure of what's meaningful and fulfilling. There's a difference between, to me, between um, happy and fulfilling and fulfilling has to do with the thing I'm working toward and working on and the communities I'm part of are part of a big spiritual, beautiful, cultural uh, ecosystem that I feel myself to be a thriving member of. And I wonder if that, if rebuilding that might also 
come back to impacting the climate thing because I think when communities have enough spiritually, they don't try to fill it materially. Mm. And when individuals have enough, when their ecosystem is strong and nourishing them, they don't go out and try to, um, with, with money or possessions or ambition or career, they don't try to fill that hole with things that aren't really going to fill it anyway. Mm. We're really getting deep here, aren't we? Jeez. <laughs> Oh, we're just going to talk about like artists' livelihoods. <laughs> um, when I, so like on, on this business course that I'm on, I realized that sort of business principles are based on growth. Like whatever that you do, you've got to grow. You've got to have the profits. If you, even if your business is doing well, how can you expand buy machines yeah. and then lower your cost and continue growing, expanding, going to different countries and then I remember I had this conversation with um, the supply chain tutor and he was saying that we have to grow because then, you know, how are developing countries going to lift themselves out of poverty? And then I went and had a conversation with my Cambodian friend and he was telling me that capitalism wasn't helping, economic growth wasn't helping because there's so much corruption. People go in there, they open up their country to you know, um, Chinese businesses who drive, who drove up property prices, they're not buying food from, you know, local produce, they are importing from China. And then people find themselves in a situation where to get the micro loans to help out in, with their, their farm work, they couldn't pay it back. And the high interest rates that's being charged, they end up losing their land. And in a country that has just become ridiculously expensive because of foreign investors, they found themselves in a position where they cannot afford to live there. So when we talk about like economic growth or, you know, all these things, like which, which conversation is supporting what? What is the reality in there? Are the conversations being held by, you know, people at the top, be it on a governmental level or, or on a UN level, as well as people who are, you know, really feeling the impact of it, like normal people who are trying to live. What are the ways, are we finding ways to even facilitate conversations between people with such different backgrounds? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, I mean, partly when you ask that question, I think maybe that's the thing you'd be really good at. It sounds like you're taking these business courses with a very um, critical and insightful eye that sees other kinds of economies and other kinds of flow than the capitalist one. And that might be, again, just like, what's an interesting question that that could be a really great question for someone like you to work on, because I think it's rare that um, it's rare that an artist is talking to a logistics professor and it's rare <laughs> that someone in a logistics class is like making socially engaged art. Uh, but I think that's, I think there are some other models. I mean, the so there's, I think permaculture is an interesting model in terms mm -hmm. of agriculture. Um, in America, you have something called the B Corp. Mm. Um, it's these, spreading. These ways, yeah, these ways of structuring corporations around, um, I would still say they're around growth, but they're around very measured growth and not sort of infinite expansion. And they prioritize um they prioritize other values, other sustainable values in terms of their employees, in terms of their culture, in terms of their impact. Uh, but I think the, I mean, this fundamental question of capitalism, which is uh, 
the growth mindset, which is also what leads to the debt. So the reason all of this yeah. is debt finance is because it you will be able to pay it off later because you're going to grow. Yeah. And there's no point in borrowing money at a at any interest rate if you're going to be exactly where you are next week. This is why... Mm you know, farmers get screwed by the capitalist economy because they take out loans at interest and farming doesn't scale in that way. And so um, I wonder if there is some even deeper thinking about, I mean, I guess this is my question. Can you harness the incredible generative nature of the free market without the toxic externality of infinite growth? You know, I'm, so I went on the business course because I'm trying to understand why we are stuck in a financial system that doesn't work. So my plan was to just infiltrate it and <laughs> ask all these questions that nobody is asking in that space. And like I think lecturers, well, some of them don't really want to entertain me, but some of them, they understand this issue. And I, I feel like there is, there is a gap and there is a lot of hypocrisy as well because, you know, there are... On one hand, they're like, yes, the climate crisis is real. Yes, we have to do more for sustainability. But yeah, come up with a business plan that is going to make money, that is in the green re renewable space so that I can invest in you and then I'm doing my part for the world, you know? And it's like, uh, okay, so ultimately you're still benefiting, you know? You're still earning money from it. You're just riding on that wave. So like when we really talk about this, where where is the conversation going? Like, you know, someone someone's gain means that something's got to lose and for the largest part of humanity it's been nature and you know if if the biggest takers are not prepared to lose anything we are not exactly going to shift any of these inequalities in this world and yeah what sort of questions to ask you know when we infiltrate that space because i also see this disconnect you know like on one hand my this logistics um, lecturers talking about how you know I think we are fucked and that you know the business world is selfish unless these people at the top are less greedy then we are not going to change things but on the other hand he is he is not teaching supply chain in a way that addresses sustainability he's teaching right. it the old way that is being taught that continues to grow and exploit and and he doesn't see himself as, you know, someone in a position to be able to change things because he doesn't feel like he's powerful enough. So who then feels like they are powerful enough to create that change if, you know, these were VPs in large companies, you know, if even the CEO doesn't feel like they can change things because they have shareholders at their back, then, you know, who who exactly, like, who is running this world? Who is running the system? Yeah. I mean, that, that is a great question to ask. Who is running the system? And I think it can be easy when you see the failings of the system to imagine changing it. I don't know. I guess I want to... I guess I want to be a little bit of a devil's advocate now and say <laughs> I'm very... I've become very suspicious when people say they want to make the world a better place. I don't know... I, th I find that very disconnected. I find it very facile and easy thing to say. And in my experience, a lot of the people who start off with that agenda end up unintentionally creating a lot of suffering um, and kinds of externalities. 
I worry that 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 urge of how do I make the world a better place and the particularly the franticness around it right now because of the climate crisis, I worry that that, uh, first of all, is a place where a lot of privilege and power kind of get constituted. So the people who say, I'm going to make the world a better place do not tend to be the people who are suffering the brunt of our current system in the worst way. Uh, those people are much more focused on how do I make my community a better place? How do I make my family's conditions better? How do I make, um, how do I change things in a really local face-to-face -face way? So I, and I, I think make the world a better place implies that A, you, you see the world, you understand how it's bad, you have a vision for the better version and you have a way to get there. All of which I think are pretty hard, unknowable things. And they're even unknowable on a very small scale. Even if you went into one workplace and you were like, what would it mean to change this workplace to be more sustainable for the people involved and the planet? <laughs> I think it's very hard to even know that. And I think on the scale that we're now trying to talk about it, I worry that it, that, that question of making the world a better place becomes, becomes a, the home for a lot of ego and my own ego, I'm not, I'm not pushing this on you. Like my own ego, my own, like, how do I make the world a better place? Um, so I would like to do away with that phrase and make us accountable to saying something more precise. Like to say, I want to um, make my home community a place where more people are able to be, get the education that they want. That's a massive goal. Like that's many generations of goal, but it's at least to me, you can, you can wrap your arms around it because you live in that community, because you know people who are getting the education they want and people who are not. I mean, I'm assuming, you know, you do as a socially engaged practitioner, uh, you can begin to at least hold that in a local way. You can sit in rooms that contain that problem and I worry that when we try to, quote unquote, make the world a better place, we're just disembodying ourselves from our own local citizenship, from our own experience, and from the real relationships and cruelties and sufferings that are right at hand and that are right in our, in our rooms with us. So I, I love that systems change, and it's very easy for me to go there and be like, well, how could you rewrite capitalism? How could you rewrite board oversight to be more sustainable? You know, I think those are interesting questions. But I worry that in our, in our rush to, to make the world, quote unquote, a better place, we, um, we rush past the imprecision of what we can see and know and what we can touch. And we, in the end, rush past the sort of kindness and the, the, the meaningful questions that we could be bringing because we go into, into a place of um, scale and abstraction, which is to me also very capitalist to be like, what, if, what would it mean to scale up green thinking? <laughs> and you're like, well, wait a minute. That's the problem, not the answer. Uh, but what, and I, I again, I'm, I'm just being devil's advocate here to, to push back. And I, I, I love and appreciate your vision and your, the breadth of your thinking so much. But when you think about what it might mean to, for that to be handheld and in your, your actual network of human relations, does, it, does, it, does something else arise, something other than hopelessness? Um, I guess I wonder if empathy comes from pain and that the pain we see 
it's a reflection of our pain to a certain degree. And the magnitude of suffering we see in the world is perhaps also a reflection of the intensity or depth of the pain that we've received or felt. And when I was in France, I was working with minors who were seeking asylum and seeing how human lives can be invisible, <laughs> how people could end up living without dignity, seeing how little options they have, and it's really down to luck whether or not they get received and taken in by an association that can afford to do so, and seeing how many people have closed their eyes to them. And I don't have... I am one person, and as much as I want to give, I realized that I, I didn't have more than what I could give. I was getting to a point where I was exhausting myself. And even if I didn't have anything financially to give, I was giving emotionally. And how how much can I can I be there for them for how long? You know, and there are so many of them, and I I still feel, you know, inadequate as a, as a human being because I feel like I'm never doing enough. While others tell me that you're not their mother, like that's not your responsibility. Yet, I'm also reflecting that they are a product of a system that's failed. So where do we go about to address this? Where, I mean, I, I've also realized that systemic transformation is going to have to come from personal transformation. How, how can people care better for others? But then for some, it's, you know, my priority is caring for my family. That's more urgent. I see my day-to-day, -day, I have to... I have to figure that out first before I can care for anyone else. And, and before, before I, I fulfill that, I cannot see anyone else. So, you know, if, if we're all stuck in this system, then what happens, you know, like what happens to the people who have left their local environment and is somewhere else where they are maybe not yet a part of that community or that they're alone what happens to all these people who are moving around in this world or, you know, cities ha that have become more lonely, more isolating? Who is there for these people? What kind of world or what kind of, I guess, when we talk about localization instead of globalization, that applies to impact as well. Then what kind of local circle local environment do we want to create can we create yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i think that's really beautifully said i just want to like again like honor that experience and that i feel like the depth of care that you're expressing and the the final inadequacy of that care in the face of the world's suffering, that's, that's profound. And that is a very human experience. And I think there's a truth there that, that, yeah, that when I think 
we talk about making the world a better place, I think it does, it, that can pave over that truth, which is that the amount of, um, the amount of empathy in your heart is boundless and so is human suffering. And that's a, um, those things don't resolve, you know, that equation doesn't equal out. And we have to draw, we, we draw boundaries, we decide where to put it. Um, I think the, um, but I loved how, Wes, you were talking about that, just, I don't know, like the, the way like voices and bodies change when we're talking from a very authentic first person experience, as opposed to talking about these abstract systems. To me, that is a kind of, there's something political there because the abstract systems win by having us not be in our breath and body in that way. They win by having us function in this more conceptual realm. And so to me, just that like, that work you talk about doing um, with, with migrants in Europe, that's like your experience of that and your truth around that feel, that already feels like a, um, a counterweight to these kind of global systems. And not, not an adequate one, not one that will, I don't know, vanquish the polluters, <laughs> but it's, it's articulated in a language that when I hear you speak in that way, I, that's a world I do want to live in. I want to live in a world where people talk like that and they wrestle with that problem, which is that they have so much love and so much empathy and there are so much suffering and so many people um, in dire need. That's the externality, the complexity, the, the, the unanswerable questions that to me lead to a beautiful community and way of being with each other. So I know that's not like, I guess I'm, all I'm saying is like, yes <laughs> to that. <laughs> and maybe, maybe again, as artists, like there's, that leads to interesting questions. You know, I would love to see a piece that involved your logistics professor performing with one of those, you know, young migrant that you connected with in Europe. Like what, how would they talk? How would they see these problems differently in the same? Could they eat, eat dinner together and actually connect on a human level? I don't know. There's, there's ways in which I think you're already diagramming the question in your experience that go deeper than I think most people do. And maybe, maybe you're already doing it. Maybe it's already there. <laughs> maybe now is a good time to end over with this final question because we overrun. Um, what is one thing that someone can do to create change in this world? <laughs> Wait, but we just took apart that question. We just decided that was... A <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I guess I'll, I'll start by saying I find that question a bit abstract, and I worry that when we start thinking about changing the world, we, um, we've already lost the, the, the ecosystem and the ground that those kinds of things grow out of, which is our bodies, our breath, our loved ones, our communities, the land we're connected to. Like, so I might say, you know, look at yourself, find yourself, find your breath, find, find the beloveds around you. Um, 
And out of that, I think you will find ways to move differently. I, I don't want to solve these big global problems on the terms on which they were made. I want to solve them on different terms, right? Very few problems are solvable on the terms in which, which generated the problem. So if you're going to, you're going to make me say how to make a change in the world, which I'm reluctant to say, because I don't know. And I think the world is not a stable thing, but if you're going to make me answer that, I'd say, yeah, find your body, find your breath, find the breath and body of those around you. And out of that, yeah, move with attention rather than, um, ambition and uh, rushing through to, you know, improving us all or fixing us all. Something that's sort of like calling out to me recently is um, you are enough. And I think it's easy to lose that. Whatever social expectations or pressures that we are enough, as long as we're genuine and authentic, I think. And for me, growing older as an artist has really been the process of getting more specific about my ambitions and what I want to do and what I want to work on. And I, I was very massive and starry-eyed in a way that I think was exciting, but in a way that also kind of wasn't grounded in who I actually am. You know, there's things that I'm, there's a thing that I'm here to do. And to get simpler and more precise about that is both a great relief because as you said, it kind of lets you let go of some of that constant feeling of inadequacy because I'm not gonna change, save the planet, I'm not. But I'm interested in connecting artists because I feel like it's kind of unlimited what artists can unleash. And if we have that connection and make it more sustainable and, and have each other kind of an organized way so that everyone's work gets a little deeper and a little stronger, that's much bigger than anything I'll ever accomplish. So that to me is an example of like, you can say that I am enough and that can also lead to maybe some actions that do I don't know, have some like ecosystem effects rather than just like, well, okay, I built this one set of paintings and I hung it on a wall and some people saw it. You know, you can, what I think you're already doing, obviously, and like you seem to have a real gift for is some of those, yeah, changing the ecosystem and the soil. And you don't know what's going to grow out of it. Like we don't know, but we know that it's going to be richer and thicker because it was, it has that compost and that life in it. And I think that, I don't know, that to me is the balance of, but you are enough thought is like comforting and like, okay, take a breath, let it go. You're not going to save the world. But the other side of that is like, you actually can, um, yeah, you can change the, the soils that you work in and that will, that will have effects that will go far beyond your lifetime and far beyond your awareness. I guess you can tell I'm thinking a lot about plants right now. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a great thinking to have right now <laughs> everyone should um, I think everyone should really just plant something themselves Singapore is um, encouraging uh, high-tech farming <laughs> it's like 
I don't know, um, hydroponics and stuff. I'm just like, you know, just get your kids to be in touch with the soil and actually learn to be in a relationship with nature because we don't know that, you know, if you ask a kid here to draw nature, they're going to draw you a potted plant because that's what we have around. (laughs) Oh, Lordy. Lordy, Lordy. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a really nice conversation. Yes, thank you so much. Such a such a wide and deep conversation. I just want to say again, like I think you're. I love the questions you're asking, and I love the courage you're bringing to them, and I love that you're following them to other countries and and art and business and activism and service. Like that's a very. You're on a very profound path, and I, I, I'm. It's 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 a real honor to to talk to you and share some space. You know, you're, um, I think you had a quote somewhere on like, there is no fixed path. <laughs> like there, you have to make your own path. Like that just really resonated when I read it. Cause you know, no one's going to tell you what to do. No one's going to tell you what to follow. And I feel like that's that, you know, nobody understands what I'm doing. My family don't, um, people I connected with on purpose on meaning, like they, they support me, they cheer me on, but I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> I just want to say from the outside, it looks like so strong and intentional and I totally get it all. Like I get all the pieces. It makes total sense to me. And that is great. Like that, when I see someone where I'm like, these pieces don't fit together in the world, but they totally fit together in your work. That is profound. Like you're, you're, you're exactly asking the difficult questions and you're, you're following them with courage. So that's great. And yeah, your family's never going to understand it. Mine, <laughs> mine still doesn't. They love me. It's not love. They, they love, but they're like, I thought you were a choreographer. What? You're writing now? That's totally different. You can't do that. You can't just switch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, even yeah. in the artist world, like, you know, if you, if you are a filmmaker and then you go into theater and performance and then you make costumes, they're like, so what exactly are you? Can you tell me again, what is your category? Uh, which funding are you going for? Uh, can you just tell me what is your portfolio? Like what, just one one field. <laughs> yeah. I think that anytime I get met with that pushback, I say to myself, this is total confirmation I'm on the right path. Like the fact that these people, it doesn't fit in their categories is exactly telling me that I am moving in the right way. Because we used to get that with our performance work. Too. Like, well, is it dance? Is it theater? Is it interactive, you know, public art? Um, and every time we got those questions, we're like, oh, thank God, it's confusing them. That means we are actually making something not based on genre, not based on these discipline categories, but based on actual questions. And anyone who has actual questions is going to overflow those categories immediately. So good for you. Get more, confuse more people. Because <laughs> <laughs> really, thank you for this conversation. Hello Onions Talk listeners, thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, it would really help if you can leave a review on iTunes or like us on Facebook. Otherwise, subscribe and share it with people whom you think will enjoy this. Special thanks to Andre for the music. Catch you next episode. Hello everyone. I've got some exciting news for you. My new project, 
the Reconnection Playground will meet you through online well-being sessions. These workshops will use art and film as tools for expression to connect with our emotions and with one another. The topics will include sense-making, mental health, climate crisis, purpose-finding. We will gradually build a community of change makers through these workshops. So do join us. Register on my website, link in description, or search my name, F-I-E-N-E-O.